Good. I think we're I think we're good now. Um, yeah. Okay. So we're blessed properly, and uh, so we can uh, proceed. Uh, I want to begin. Uh, we're we're talking about creeds. Uh, for the next few weeks, and uh, Phil's going to take us through all the major Christian creeds that you will uh, surely recognize as good Methodists, and um, so he'll be doing that in the next few weeks. He wanted to, he wanted me to come in and talk a little bit about some foundational creeds from that we see in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And so I thought today we'd look at a few, and then if we have time, I want to look at one from the New Testament. So we'll just see how how our time goes. So I want to begin by asking you just to get our minds uh, thinking um, along the lines of uh, what creeds do and how they function. Uh, do we have any former Marines in the audience? There are no former Marines. Oh, okay, that's right. That's shouldn't even ask it that way. Any Marines in the audience? See, this is good. This is exactly what I wanted this morning. I want to be, because I'm not one, but my father was. So, and I now remember that that's, I, I was trying to remember, I actually called my dad over the weekend. I said, hey, I need some help with uh, uh, this illustration I want to use. So, uh, I now remember that that's part of the, the formation. Well, um, so how do we know, uh, how do we know that one is a Marine? What would you say to that? Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Okay. <laughs> You're an awesome person. They're proud. Okay. And they'll talk to you about going through boot camp. Okay, yeah. All right. Yeah. So they've got experiences that they share. And so, so that's one thing. Um, we could talk about. Um, let's, let's think about some things associated with the Marine Corps. Um, okay, I'm going to start it. And Jim's going to finish it. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Yes, yes, I don't know the rest of it. Could anybody recite the rest of it? Somebody probably knows it here too. Um, countries, battles, and it landed on the sea, is that right? First of five. Okay, I'm going to put the mic. Come on, come on. Come on, Liz knows the song. Come on. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, do you have to learn this song as a Marine? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah, my dad said that you had to, this was part of the, you know, the, the process. Um, what, what is, the, what are those, let's think about the first line there, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Um, anybody know? I want to put Jim on the spot completely here, but what, what's that referring to? The halls of Montezuma and the shores of Tripoli. Anybody know? Ba yeah, battles. Yeah, battles. The Tripoli was uh, uh, the Barbary War uh, during, uh, I had to look all this up. Um, I, yeah, I had no idea myself. <laughs> you find a lot on, online these days. Uh, yeah, a, a war, was a, a series of battles that were fought during um, Thomas Jefferson's uh, presidency. Okay, uh, Halls of Montezuma. Anybody remember that one? Or know that one? Mexican War, yeah, that's right. Uh, this is when, I think 1847, there were some battles fought down in Mexico for border disputes and, and the like, and um, there was a, a, a battle there where Marines served a, a very important uh, purpose, and a lot of, apparently a lot of Marines died in that battle. So that becomes a part of the song that every Marine now has to know. Um, my dad told me about, uh, do you know the Rifleman's Creed? 
this is my rifle. There are many like it, but I mine. I don't. I don't have the whole text in front of me. But he said that you had to recite this this uh, this creed about your rifle. And um, my my dad said, now, I can't remember a lot of things, but I still remember my uh, ID number. Do you remember your ID number? 1811 637. All right, there we go. <laughs> he did too. He rattled off just like that. <laughs> Apparently, you learn it quickly, though, right? Because if you don't know it, there is there are penalties for such things. So, um, well, so what are we talking about here? I mean, these are all things that form a marine, right? And. And, and look at look at how all of these things are functioning. Not only do you know like basic stuff like an ID number, but you know the history of the people whom with with whom now you are associated, right? You know the battles of uh, long people long ago, and you've joined this group that has a rich history, and you are now a part of that. But being a part of it forces you to know that history because that helps you know who you are. So that's how creeds function, right? I mean, uh, we, we can see it very clearly with something like the Marine Corps. Um, but it's also true of Christianity, right? And that's, what, that's how these creeds function that we're gonna study. They, they tell you who you are. They tell you who the people are that you are now joined with. And uh, to that end, they give you an identity. That's how foundational these things are. They shape you, they mold you, they tell you who you are, shared experiences, all of those things are uh, a part of what it means to, to uh, have a creed and to know uh, a creed. Well, let's look at um, some examples from the Old Testament. There's an early creed in the book of Deuteronomy, and I want to take a minute here to look at this. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, Turn to uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26. The wording of this will probably be familiar when I read it, although it may not, you may not recognize it just from uh, the chapter number. Um, yeah, so again, Deuteronomy 26, verses 5 to 9. Let me back up to verse 4. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. And then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so here is a, again an interesting, uh, an interesting example of an early foundational creed for the people of God. Um, and again, like we saw with the, with the Marine Corps example, knowing your history tells you who you are. And uh, we, we know this to be true on so many levels, don't we? That um, imagine somebody who doesn't know their history. And that almost seems impossible for us. Um, 
And this is why, as we age, uh, dementia and Alzheimer's is so scary, because it cuts us off from that memory. And uh, so when we don't have that, it, it really threatens who we are, because if we don't know our history, it's like we're losing a part of our identity. So um, this, this, but this is a great example, again, of um, uh, the Israelite story. Well, let's think about it for a minute. Uh, who is this wandering Aramean that our writer talks about? Yeah, okay, so it's Abraham. It, it's, it's almost like it's a mixture, isn't it, of, of the patriarchs? Because we know Abraham was from the land of what we now call, or what we call the Mesopotamia regions. Um, and so there's a sense in which he could be considered an Aramean. Um, but uh, does Abraham go to Egypt? He actually does, but he doesn't stay there. And so that's why I think this, this uh, creedal formation is an interesting mixture. It's like a collage of the patriarchs. So my father was a wandering Aramean, that could be Abraham. But Jacob actually goes up there too, doesn't he? Remember he has to flee because he gets in trouble with his brother? Remember that? So he actually spends some time up in the Aramean lands. So you can think of Jacob as a, as a wandering Aramean. Isaac doesn't go up there. They send a, apparently, uh, uh, Abraham didn't trust Isaac <laughs> to go. So he sends a stand-in. So Isaac actually doesn't go to, to um, the Aramean lands. But in any case, uh, Jacob does. But uh, yeah, who ends up down in Egypt, kind of permanently? Uh, it's Jacob, right? He ends up settling there as an old man because, according to the Bible, his uh, you know Joseph gets taken down there and, and um, um, rises in the ranks there in the Egyptian um, administration and uh, then allows for the people of Israel to um, come down there, escape from the famines, and um, uh, be able to live for a number of generations. So it's interesting that this, this cradle formation is kind of a mixture of these uh, early patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The other thing I would point out in this, uh, this, this early creedal formation is that um, the, uh, the identity of the people of God at their very foundation is that they are a saved people. They are redeemed. And their basic story, when you boil it down to what, who are the people of God, one of the most foundational things about the people of God is that they were saved. They were in trouble, and God saved them from that trouble. He delivered them out of these, uh, this terrible slavery that they were in. Um, one other thing I would note about this, uh, this creed that we, we read in Deuteronomy 26. Notice that we switch from the singular, my father was a wandering Aramean, to the plural, we did this, and God did that for us. So it moves from kind of a personal statement of my, my father was a wandering Aramean down to he saved us, God saved us. So it's an interesting combination there of how you move from sort of personal identity to the identity of one amidst uh, a bigger group, which is, we, we see that a number of, of uh, occasions in the Old Testament. Well, in any case, the story, this particular creedal statement orients the people of Israel. It is their history. It's where they've come from, and it has become the story of each one in Israel by extension, because future generations would recite this. It's not as though this is some kind of ancient history that has nothing to do with us. This is a creedal statement that seems to have been used the way we use creeds today. It's something that every generation recites. 
because they are a part of that story too. They're not there present, but in a sense they are potentially there as uh, the people of God. Okay, let me stop and see if you have questions about the, the Deuteronomy 26 creed. Okay, well let's look at another one then. The one, there's another one that you probably know a little better, and it's also in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. And this is the famous, Hear, O Israel, um, statement. Okay, so let's read that one. Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 6. Here, uh, sorry, back up into verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hand, hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Okay, so this is the, the so-called Shema. If you've ever had a Jewish friend, uh, you know that this is a, a big part of the, the Jewish tradition. Uh, train's not so loud today. Did they turn down the volume? You usually have to stop at this point, right? And let, them, let it blow its horn. Um, so this is the Shema. This is the, uh, this is the statement that's recited twice a day by good Jews. You're supposed to do this in the morning when you get up, and you're supposed to do it at night after you see the three major stars right, in the Jewish tradition. So, um, so they wake up every morning, and, and this, is, this is what they say. So it is a very foundational. Uh, let's look at a few of the details here. The basic confession is that God is one. Now, what does that mean? God is one. Yeah, uh, it's only one God, and it's it's been interpreted to mean that this is the basic foundational statement of monotheism, right? A belief in one God, which is very odd in the ancient world, right? Because most cultures have a belief in a variety of gods, so Israel stands out in many ways from that. They're not absolutely unique in that regard, but they it's a, it's a very unique uh, facet of their. Um, early beliefs, and uh, so we see this as uh, a statement of um, monotheism. Well, when it says, love the Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, let's think about what it means to love God in this context. Well, um, it's pretty clear to, to most scholars, I would say, that uh, the love here is uh, diplomatic language. It's not... Um, you shouldn't think of it as the way we think of love, perhaps, of being emotionally attached or have emotional, deep feelings for someone. That's not really what this love means. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear that Deuteronomy is, is uh, cast in a, diplomatic, uh, in a diplomatic light. So uh, if you read other diplomatic and um, uh, we call them covenantal formulations in the ancient Near East, you see that this is, this is the language that's used, that you're supposed to love the sovereign. Like in Egypt, you're supposed to love the Pharaoh. And it's clear from those contexts that what it means is, is that you do what the, the Pharaoh says. You obey him. So when, when in Deuteronomy it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, it means 
be faithful to Him in the way you live your life. And do that in every facet of your life. Your heart, your soul, and your strength. So I think that's the, the idea here behind uh, the Shema. Uh, the, the hero Israel. Uh, just a little side look light here. When we look at the, the New Testament, when the New Testament uh, quotes the Shema, it uh, quotes it in a number of interesting permutations. It's not quite the same thing. So if you look in the New Testament where it's quoted, we're supposed to, uh, we've got three quotes of this in the New Testament. In, in Mark's version of it, you're supposed to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've got four things rather than three things. And in Matthew, you just have heart, soul, and mind, three things. And then in Luke, you have heart, soul, strength, and mind. So they move around the, uh, uh, the order a bit. All that to say, it's an attempt to get at the, uh, the essence of what is being conveyed in the Old Testament. And I think probably in the, in the New Testament tradition, they needed to add a few words, just as you would in any translation if you're trying to clarify what something means. That's why you have uh, four things sometimes in the New Testament rather than three, um, as it is in the, um, in the Shema, the original text. This whole uh, formation, this, this whole formulation of the Shema is supposed to be the thing that you instill in your children as well. Did you notice that? So you, you proclaim that God is one, and you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But, more, but also important is that you convey this to your children as you raise them. Bind them as a sign on your hands and between your eyes. I mean, this is the basis of the Jewish practice of, you, you ever seen a, a Jew at the Western Wall in Israel or in a, even in um, synagogues today where Jewish men and sometimes women will take the text and wrap it around their, they have a, a it's a procedure, right, of, of wrapping this around their, their arm as they recite the Shema. And sometimes they have these little boxes, you know, they go on the forehead, phylacteries, and they're, they're bound there really to fulfill what, what's being conveyed here. And then, of course, if you've been to Israel or been to a Jewish home, you know that on the doorways they put these little things um, that sort of at a 45-degree angle, uh, little masseuses, yeah. And inside you've got the Shema written on a very small piece of parchment probably, rolled up and put inside. And that's, that's, what, uh, that's what you'll see when you go to Israel. Many of you have been to Israel, you know a good Jews uh, will, kiss, will kiss those uh, masseuses as they go in and out of, uh, of a particular building. So uh, that's what's going on. It's a, it's a fulfillment of this basic creedal statement of uh, affirming that God is one and that we are to love God, we are to obey God with all of our being. Um, one final thought there with uh, this whole notion of tying. It's really the basis of the, the word that we use for faith, religion. Religion literally means in Latin to re-tie, re-legare, to tie. And so the idea is that you're binding yourself to a deity. And so it's a really nice connection with the Shema, that you bind these things on your arm, and you, you, you literally put them on your head. Um, it's the basic idea of what it means to have a religion. It's to connect ourselves, to tie ourselves in, in covenant faithfulness to, uh, to a God. Okay, let me stop and uh, see if you have questions about the Shema. That gives me a chance to drink my coffee. <laughs> I wonder if okay. just... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I just wonder if just with those 
procedures, if that makes, and who can say, I guess, a, a stronger faith. Yeah. Constantly remind yourself to kiss that as you go in mm -hmm. and out the door. And right. Whereas, you know, when Catholics have their That's right. deal. That's right. Um, yeah. Just mm -hmm. Let me repeat what you said so everybody can hear it. Uh, the point was that maybe these uh, these physical actions of binding something and, and touching something as you go through a doorway, it, it can really be a helpful reminder and uh, really make it kind of part of a spiritual discipline, I think. That's not the word you use, but I think that's what you're thinking of, uh, to constantly be reminded of that connection. That when you bind that on your arm, you're really forcing yourself to live that out in a way. Now, the downside of that could be that it can be empty ritual, right? I mean, it all there's there's always a good a good side and a bad side to anything we can do uh, to convey our faith, and so um, there's always a danger of it being just a rote process where your heart's not in it. So there's a danger of that, but I do I do think you're right that there is a real sense in which going through the motions of those things really reminds you of who you are. And that's, that's, to me, the richness of those traditions, like Judaism, like Roman Catholicism, um, to, uh, to cross yourself and to, um, to genuflect, to, to bend your knees and um, do all the, the various things that, that Christians do with the rosary and the like. Those are physical things that um, can be helpful, certainly can be helpful, um, to, uh, to shape you spiritually as you, you know, go through life, go through challenges. Some people find it very comforting to have a rosary when... You know, they're in, their loved ones are in the hospital, for, for example. Um, so those things are, are, are wonderful uh, ways that people have uh, really engaged the process of, of formation. Because that's what we're really talking about here. Form, being formed by, by practices that, um, yeah, just remind us of, uh, of who we are. Okay, and another question? Yes. When you talk about love in the Old Testament quotes, I think in the New Testament we hear love used as agape, philios, and mm -hmm. eros. Mm -hmm. Is that political one a different translation? It's when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they used agape or agapao, the verb, when they encountered this particular word. Um, so it it's tricky to use. Uh, you know, when you when you translate it, you're you're. It's like any translation. You know, if you've ever tried to read a translation, there's always something that's lost, and so um, it's hard to say exactly. Uh, when, you, when you're looking at every example of love in the New Testament, for example, I don't think it's conveying that diplomatic meaning that you see here in Deuteronomy six. But there are there are a few places where I think it is, like in the the uh, the epistles of John, first and second and third John, when John says. Uh, those who love God follow what he says. John is tapping into that old notion of the diplomatic use of love. So there are places in the New Testament where that's true. But I think there's other places too where it, where it, it, it uses other words. And uh, when Jesus talks to uh, John after he's resurrected, he says, do you love me? And there he says, agape. But then he changes it and says, he changes it to phileo. Do you love me like a friend? And uh, John's kind of incredulous, incredulous, like, what? You know, I'm, you know I'm your friend. So that's an interesting interchange there of the words. So, yeah, it's a good question. Though. Then we had a question in the back, and then we'll come forward. I've never heard that word before. Is it spelled like a sound? Uh, Shema? Yeah, it's spelled, uh, 
uh, it would be like S-H-E-M-A, the Shema. Mm -hmm. That's just shorthand for these verses that, that Jews use. So they'll say, hey, just recite the Shema this morning. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Good. Uh, others? Yes? Just a couple of verses down. Uh, in verse 13, you shall fear the Lord your God. Mm -hmm. And in my study, in all the Mosaic writings, fear the Lord was the way it was said until this Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, Doesn't love and fear run? Yeah, it, it's a it's a bit of a problem because we hear fear and we think of a kind of an unhealthy relationship, right? Um, that can be sort of abusive. I don't really think that's what that's not what the Bible's conveying. But but uh, what's that? Reverence. Yeah, it, it's more of a, it's really more the way you understand it. I mean, the word for fear, it is used to fear, and it's used to fear God, but it's also used to fear the Philistines who are attacking. So, in, and even in Hebrew, it's a problem, you know, to, to blend those two things. But, yeah, I think it's the idea of reverence, you know, a healthy respect for who God is. And, um, yeah, is that's, like that's a... I'm sorry. Is it not like your parent? You fear your parent. That's right. Yeah. There's there. You're right. That there's a sense in which having a healthy respect for all authority is good, whether we're adults or children. And uh, respecting our parents is really where that normally begins in the development of that. That's right. You are yeah. blessed. That's enough of fear. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you. <laughs> good. Okay. Fine, uh, all the way in the back. Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, um, I think that the richness of the word love probably is paralleled in the Old Testament. I, I should repeat the question. She's asking, is, uh, is, is love used that way consistently in the Old Testament in a way that's different from what you would see in the New Testament? Did I get, did I get your question right? Yep. Yeah. Um, there certainly is a sense in which uh, loving God is depicted in some ways like um, romantic love or love that would appear to be romantic. Let's put it that way. Um, one of the great interesting juxtapositions that I, I find interesting is that in Deuteronomy, loving God means the diplomatic love, do what he says, essentially, is what, what the Deuteronom Deuter Deuteronomy version of love is. But then you juxtapose that with Hosea, right? Hosea is told to go love a prostitute, to marry a prostitute, in fact. And that is supposed to be a picture of God's love for his people. And so there, you that's, that's different, isn't it, from loving, love meaning do my commands or follow me in a diplomatic sense. Uh, so you, you get, and that's just one, that's one picture of, of, um, of God. So I do think it does have, I, I think that love in the Old Testament is probably as rich as the kind of depiction you get in the New Testament. Now, of course, I would say, as a good Christian, that Jesus gives us that perfect picture of what love is, you know, poured out at the cross, dying for people who are spitting on him and calling him names and treating him horribly, killing him. Uh, that's, that's where you get the clearest picture of what love means, right? That's, that's what all Christians think. So um, it, it is more, I would say, refined, but I still would say that there's a, there's a richness to it in the Old Testament as well. Yeah. Okay, final question, and then we'll move on to one more. Real quick. 
Um, in Timothy, it says, study to show thyself a workman of prudence. Mm-hmm. That ties, I divide it out as law and grace. There was still love in the Old Testament, which is a common thread of Jesus coming all the way through. And once Jesus was on the scene, uh, died, buried, rose again, uh, we, became, we came out into the grace period, and Paul wrote that. Mm-hmm. And to me, it all ties in that way. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think generally so. I would also, I... It's a broad... Yeah, it is. It is sure, and it's it's a it's a hard question to answer uh, so quickly. The question uh, is, how does love and grace uh, get worked out, and how is it is it different in the Old Testament and it is as it is as we see it in the New Testament? Um, and my answer to that would be that I think that God is pretty consistent through the Bible, and that you, if you if you start with, if you just go through and read. Bible cover to cover, Old Testament to New Testament. I think the picture you're going to see more often than not is that God would rather love and forgive than destroy and punish. That's the pattern you see. Now, it's easy to to overlook those times when God is willing to forgive because we kind of like the pyrotechnics of Sodom and Gomorrah and those kind of things, right? <laughs> so those stories sort of loom large in our mind and we think, oh, God is a vengeful, wrathful God because of what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's true. But if you read that story carefully, you realize that God is willing not to do that. If you could just find me ten people, I'll spare the rest. And if you assume that there's, say, a thousand people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, God, look, at, look at what God is willing to do. God is willing to not punish 990 people who are making bad choices for the sake of ten who are. That's God's grace. It didn't quite work that way, but... That's, that was what he was willing to do. So, and then you look at Jonah, the, if you were in the 830 service, you know that, um, does it get preached the same in, in the other service? Is that how it works here? I'm sorry, I don't know the, the way this works. <laughs> um, so the, the theme is the same um, in both services. So you, you know the story of Jonah. I mean, Jonah actually is mad at God for being a softy, right? Because when God, when the, when the people of Nineveh repent, uh, Jonah's angry. He doesn't want God to be a softy. But that's the picture you get of God. He is, yes, I'm not, I'm not, not denying the places where he is. Uh, he does let the people go into captivity. He does let Jerusalem be destroyed. Um, but the picture is, again, mostly that God would rather forgive. He is a punishing God, but he'd rather forgive and, and, and uh, relent than to destroy. So try it sometime. Read it cover to cover and just make a list of the times where God is gracious to his people. Um, It happens more often than not. Okay, um, I think we have time to do one more. So let's do one more for uh, one more creedal statement. Uh, This one's dangerous. (laughs) Uh, The most dangerous creedal statement in the Bible is uh, Jesus is Lord. Um, and the reason it's dangerous is because uh, you there's just certain things you can't say. Some of you have traveled abroad. Has any anybody here ever traveled to a country where, if you say something against the sovereign, or you disrespect the sovereign in any way, you can go to jail for that? Anybody been to a country like that? That's okay. If you've been to Thailand, some of you've been to Thailand, I'm sure. Thailand's that way. You have to be careful. You can't. There's just some things you can't do. 
I doubt anybody here has been to North Korea, but um, <laughs> definitely true there, right? Uh, and there's, there's some other places. Saudi Arabia is that way. They don't have free speech in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you start saying things against the royal family, that can get you locked up. Well, that's how Rome was to a degree. It's not exactly the same, but it was, it was similar. And when you use the word Lord in Greek, in the Greco-Roman world, around the time of, of the, the early Christian church, uh, that was political language. And we don't hear it today because we hear Lord and we tend to think, oh, that's a spiritual thing. You know, that's, that's what we do at church. That's how we talk at church. Or when we use it, we invoke it. You know, the Lord bless you or whatever. Um, it's not, it doesn't have the punch that it had in Jesus' day, in Paul's day. To say that Jesus was Lord was really tantamount to sedition. Because you were only supposed to use that word for Caesar. So uh, this is a creedal statement that is dangerous in the first century. And to get you locked up, and we know from we know from the martyr stories, this is how they get locked up because they refuse to recant, and the, they, sometimes they appear before the Caesar, and the Caesar gives them a chance. And uh, wonderful martyr stories that uh, you should know about. Um, old man named Car Polycarp. He was a he was a friend of John, the the the, the apostle, and uh, he lived to be 86. And he stands before the uh, the, the emperor, and the emperor says, recant. Your God is a joke. Jesus is not Lord. Caesar is Lord. And he refuses. He said, he has been my sovereign and king for 86 years. I will not turn my back on him. And he dies. So that's, that's the early creedal statements and how dangerous they were. But again, think about how foundational those things are. That his story, Polycarp's story, was our story. We are a redeemed people. And that story had been so foundational for him that when his life was on the line, what does he do? He refuses to give it up. It has formed him so much. It's, it's shaped him into who he was to that degree that no power on earth could make him change his mind. That was his story, and he knew who he was. That's the power of these credos. That's the power of creedal statements. Um, so to conclude here, um, what would we say to someone who claimed to be a Marine and we went up to this person and said, hey, I bet you know about the halls of Montezuma. I bet you know about uh, Semper Fi. What is Semper Fi? Forever faithful. Yeah, forever faithful. This is a, a slogan that, that Marines use. But, so what if you met somebody who didn't know any of those things? You'd be a little suspicious, wouldn't you? You'd say, I oh, you know, I'm not sure. He says he's a Marine, but he doesn't know these things. He's not connected to those things um, because they're foundational. They're part of identity. And so that's the importance of creeds. They're important tools of formation. It tells us who we are. It tells us who we are as a people of God. It tells us where we've been as a people of God. And in many ways, it tells us where we're going. It's redemption, but redemption for service. And that's the... That's what we're shooting for with uh, these creeds, is formation. They tell us who we are, and often where we have been as a people, and they orient us for the present. Those are the creeds. So we'll, we'll keep that in mind as we go through. I know Phil's going to do a great job of taking us through all the details of the, the creeds that come later. But these are, these are three that I think are pretty important to, to remember, too, from the biblical tradition. Well, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the story of your uh, saving love for us all. 
And we pray that you'll help us uh, as we go out from this place to uh, be formed and shaped by these stories and these uh, creeds from your people from so long ago and help us to be inspired to live for you and to um, really bear witness to what you've done in our own lives and the lives of people we've loved and seen all these many years as we have been Christians. So bless us to that end and we uh, pray a special blessing of of, um, protection on the people of Florida today and we just pray that the storm will slow down and um, not cause damage and certainly we pray that no one gets hurt and uh, pray that you'll use people everywhere to um, to help those who will be in need in the next in the, in the coming days and uh, we just pray that christians everywhere can um, join hands and um, make a difference uh, for your glory so we pray all this through the name of christ our lord amen, amen.